So we've been journeying with the church at Corinth, recognizing similarities in a church that in common with so many churches in our world today was multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-layered in terms of its social mix. A church that stood at the crossing point of trade routes east and west and north and south and therefore had every stratum of society and life in it. A church that was fairly young and fairly new, and a church that had, as we've seen as we've gone through it, its share of challenges. And so there are similarities for us as a, as a gathered church in a city center with every uh, walk of life, uh, all sorts of different strata of society gathered here. We are a fairly new church, as you know. And so we're just learning from this letter that Paul wrote, really his second letter, although we call it 1 Corinthians, his second letter. And we've seen how Paul had to take this church to task on uh, the strength of a whole range of matters and issues. He had to take this church to task because of some of the issues that they wrote to him about for guidance as their founder, as it were, as the the apostle to the Gentiles, but also some matters that had come to his attention through the reports of other people. And so we've gone through and seen how he's addressed questions of division, of of the the, the temptation of the church to, to separate along party lines, going after different leaders, the temptations of Uh, sexual immorality, which was part of the backdrop of Corinthian society and which had come into the church on the feet of those first disciples, young and immature as they were. And we've seen how they had to wrestle, or Paul was challenging them to wrestle with the questions of idol worship and what they were meant to do about that. Because idol worship and idol temples, as we saw, were so closely bound up with their workplace. We've been reflecting or inviting you to take these books to think about what does it look like to be a Christian in your workplace? And more importantly, what happens when the ethics and the values and the position, the stance of the people in your workplace is at odds with your stance as a Christian? And so we looked at that Uh, what they were supposed to do when uh, advancement in your career or just belonging to your group at work required you to turn up at a pagan temple and take part in an idol feast. And then we've uh, gone from that to this next section from chapter 11 uh, right through, um, which is covering the life of the church when it comes together. And particularly, we've, we've looked at uh, issues around head coverings, an issue which appears at one level to be irrelevant in our context, but we understood, I hope, that it's not just about head coverings, but about deeper issues of how we show to, to God and to one another that we have hearts uh, and minds that are set to humble ourselves before Him and one another. And then last week, we were thinking about the Lord's Supper and how when the church came together, the temptation for them was to separate off into their little groups, their cliques, according to their their friends, who's like us, either socially or economically or ethnically. 
and for the rich to go ahead and feast at great expense because they had the leisure of turning up early and the church gathered around food, as we gather around food, certainly in this service. But the temptation was for the rich to be well provided for and for the poor to have nothing, and the context of that sacramental meal to be lost because it was all about uh, or it had, had divided along these lines and was no longer representing this powerful statement of the gospel, which is to bring you and me together wherever we've come from, whatever our background might be. The triumph of the gospel is to reconcile people to God and to reconcile people to one another and to overcome every single division and barrier. I've been doing a little bit of reading about uh, Glasgow and the church in Glasgow of old. And I've just been fascinated. I know I mentioned David Naismith a couple of times who set up Glasgow City Mission. And David Naismith was uh, roundly criticized or, or there were suspicions uh, because one of the things that David was adamant about when he founded Glasgow City Mission was that it be a, a, a mission to the poorest of society that was gathered from Christians across every denomination. And there were some who said at the time when they were setting it up, well, we will put a missionary in, or an agent as they were first called, but only if he's someone from our denomination. And then another denomination piped up and said, well, we'll put a missionary in, but only if it's someone from our denomination. And so one by one, all of these churches, of which there were many in the early 19th century in Glasgow, secession was rife. It's not a modern-day invention. We're all tempted to say, well, only if it's someone from my church. And David Naismith would have none of it and insisted that this mission was to be made up of Christians from any and every denomination. I was reading a little bit about the life of, of, uh, of Thomas Chalmers, who was a minister here in the, early 18th, in the early 19th century, early 1800s, and who, as you may or may not know, led the disruption in 1843, which led to the formation of the Free Church. But Interestingly, by the end of his life and ministry, he had become quite discouraged and disillusioned by the divisions between denominations and turned his attention to urban missions that were working across denominational lines. Tom Allen, one of my predecessors in this place in the 1950s and 60s, was at that time roundly criticized because of his uh, insistence in his evangelistic work as part of the Tell Scotland campaign in the 1950s, when Billy Graham came to Scotland and preached in the Kelvin Hall. And through that and through his subsequent ministry, he insisted on working ecumenically. In other words, working with Christians from any and every church, because the greater uh, priority was that the body of Christ work together in its mission to reach the lost, whether with the gospel or whether in terms of practical aid and compassion. Now, it's important or significant to me that at these different stages, we recognize the same trend. And it's the trend that we find all the way back in 1 Corinthians. 
the temptation is for the church to retreat to groups and divisions that separate off and fall out and fall into dispute with one another over perhaps legitimate points or things that they disagree on. And the beautiful common witness that is the power of the gospel to overcome barriers and divisions. It always makes me laugh that Jesus included Matthew the tax collector or Levi and Simon the zealot in the same group of disciples. One, a Roman collaborator working on behalf of the state. The other part of a group that was a resistance movement intent on bringing down that same state. So, a collaborator and a resistance fighter in the same team. Indeed, by the same token, he put brothers in the same team. So, if you want, you know, a recipe for fights and fallouts, put family in the same team. You see, the challenge and the glory and the witness of the gospel is where radically different people discover that in Jesus, we are brought back to one Father by one Lord who gives us one Spirit. And all the way through this letter, Paul is returning to this theme time and time and time again because the temptation is for this church to keep dividing, to say, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, to have divisions along their their economic lines, to have divisions along their ethnic lines, along their cultural lines, along the the ones that were freed, the ones that were wealthy, and the ones that were still slaves. And so we come to this passage, which is on spiritual gifts. And this is, in a sense, unfortunate that we start this today because next Sunday's Palm Sunday and the following Sunday's Easter Sunday, so we're going to start this and then we're going to park it and return to it because chapters 12, 13, and 14 uh, all uh, hang together. And so, Paul speaks to this uh, church and speaks again this message which comes from a background that says that they are experiencing all of these spiritual uh, gifts and peculiar phenomena, spiritual phenomena in the church, and they're not quite sure what to do with it. They're not quite sure how to handle it, and they're not quite sure, it seems, how, or maybe they're not asking that question, but Paul is quite clear, how is a church supposed to exercise a range of gifts and ministries and abilities without that dissolving into vanity, into separatism, into pride, into all manner of things that run counter to this unifying gospel of love and of grace. It's not insignificant that this chapter all about gifts, and the other chapter, chapter 14, all about gifts, is held together. They are held together by the chapter in the middle, which is the chapter all about love. And so, he starts off, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed about the gifts of the Spirit. And we shouldn't either. 
You know, there's an awful tension and temptation when we come to talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the church that we do it again. <laughs> Not as individuals, but we do it as churches. And we say, well, that's a charismatic church, and that's absolutely not. As though, on the one hand, there were churches that did that sort of thing, and there were churches that did not. Now there's a big debate and an uncertainty for some people about whether the gifts of the Spirit were just for that season then and are no longer relevant. But I struggle to see the reasoning for that. Because if these ministries and expressions of God the Holy Spirit as, as, we'll, as, our, as we will discover, intended to build up the body of Christ, intend to nurture the faith of the believers, intend to bring grace and help and freedom, if they are intended to help people get to a deeper understanding of who God is and of His power, then why would God stop giving them? Is it that we are so much further on and more advanced and more superior than those early Christians that we don't need God to be at work by His Spirit in the same way? I can't see that that's true. Every new generation has in it those who are coming to faith and who need to learn and discover the power of the God into whom they've come or with whom they've come into relationship. And so he starts off reminding them that when they were pagans, they were influenced and led away to dumb idols. Dumb idols. Blocks of wood or stone, objects that they worshipped that could not speak. And so in a sense, their background was dumb idols that might just have a priest or a prophet in that temple who would purport to speak on behalf of the dumb idol. But here, Paul wants them to know that you've come to serve a God who does speak. He's not a dumb idol. He's a God who has spoken, who's spoken in recent times for the church in Corinth through the person of Jesus, and who continues to speak through the work of the Holy Spirit. And remember, this is happening at a time before they had the Scriptures that we call the New Testament written down. And so they were aware of the dumb idols of their background. But now Paul wants them to know that God speaks, but they also need to know how to recognize when it's God that's speaking and when it's not God that's speaking in the same way that you and I need to recognize what is it that is coming authentically from God and what is it that's not. You know, you should always be testing anything that anybody says or preaches or teaches to make sure that it's in line with the character and the revelation and the Word of God, to make sure that it's consistent is it pointing to Jesus, or is it pointing to the person? 
Because effectively, to say Jesus be cursed is anything that points away from Jesus and replaces Him in any way as the object or the source or the means of salvation, of grace, or of relationship with God. I mean, anything that does not point towards Jesus as the Savior and as the way, the truth, and the life is in a direct or indirect way effectively saying Jesus be cursed. We have no need of Jesus. We can do it some other way. We can do it by our good works or our good actions. We can do it uh, of ourselves. Or we can follow that leader or that celebrity or that individual. Because anything that does not point us to the cross and to Jesus is pointing us away from the means of our grace and of salvation. And so it's only by the Holy Spirit that someone can say Jesus is Lord. Now, of course, those are three words that anyone who can speak can say. That's not what Paul's saying. Of course, anyone can actually say the words, Jesus is Lord. But to say and declare and to mean from the heart that Jesus is Lord is a consequence of a revelation of an understanding of a growth in grace where suddenly or through a steady journey you have come to a deep appreciation that Jesus is Lord. And so those are not just words, but the encapsulation of a revelation that says only through Jesus. And so whether someone who's speaking points away from Jesus to someone or something else, or whether someone is pointing to Jesus with a heartfelt conviction and sincerity and urgency, those, says Paul, are the hallmarks of how you may test and see whether the one who speaks and purports to speak is speaking by the Spirit of God who speaks himself. And so then Paul goes on into this introduction about the gifts of the Spirit. And yes, he, he, he describes some of them or touches on them. Indeed, he doesn't describe them in the way that we might like a description of them, exactly to know what it was that Paul was understanding by them. But what we can know is that Paul, and the, the, the church in Corinth, understood what it was that they were about. And so there are different kinds of gifts, he says, different kind of serving or service and different kinds of working. And, and unintentionally or intentionally, he makes this a Trinitarian statement. There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. And so the gifts that he's about to describe are the outworking of the Holy Spirit. 
but they are another way of looking at the different dimensions of the service that Jesus calls you and me to, where Jesus Himself came as a servant king. He washed the disciples' feet and said that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet so you should wash one another's feet. He set an example. And so already we have a clue. The gifts are connected to service. And he says it's the same working, uh, and, and sorry, different kinds of working, but in all of them, the same God at work. And then he goes on to talk about these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Three figures in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but working together. The Holy Spirit, the giver, the source of these uh, strange gifts that they are experiencing in the church. But actually their function is that the church might serve God and one another and they might recognize that in anything and everything that's going on, it is the activity of God that is going on here. And it's not to highlight one individual over another. There's always the temptation of vanity. There's always the temptation of the, the singling out of a particular gift or privilege or ability. I didn't know Hannah could do that with her fingers. And I don't know when and where that might be a useful skill, but I'm just trusting that Hannah is going to continue to contribute and offer that gift to the body of Christ here in St. George's Tron. But if nothing else, you all recognize that each of you is already unique. And each of us in some way or another has particular skills or talents or gifts or quirks <laughs> that make us individually unique. That was just a bit of fun. But at a much deeper and more serious level, the body of Christ consists, as Paul will go on in his body metaphor, which we're going to look at in a few weeks' time, to say, actually, you belong to one another. And whatever God empowers or releases or enables amongst you, it is not for you to boast over, it's not for you to triumph over and say, well, I must be a super saint because God has blessed me in this way. It is in order that the work of God can be seen in the body of Christ, that some might be healed and helped, that some might hear a word that they recognize has an anointing and a, a wisdom of God and a revelation of that, that only God could know about it, and that others who are not yet believers, will see and recognize. It's the raison d'etre for healing rooms. It doesn't sadly exist in Glasgow at the moment, but certainly for many years. Healing rooms was a ministry that opened the doors and invited people, whether they were of faith or no faith, to come and be prayed for. Not to highlight the gifts or the giftedness of the individuals who were doing the praying, but in the faithful expectation that should God the Holy Spirit touch somebody's life with his peace or with transformation or with help, then they would know and recognize the power and the reality of God and take 
God willing, a next step. And so Paul stresses that to each one the manifestation is given for the common good, and he lists these. Now, the gifts of the Holy Spirit may be given to people in different ways. For some people, they are gifted in a particular way on an ongoing basis. In Ephesians, Paul lists there the the fivefold ministry gifts and saying that some are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Everyone playing their part. If it wasn't going to have taken too long, I was tempted to find a 50-piece jigsaw and give you all a piece. Because each one of you, if you are in Christ, then He is in you, has the capacity and the potential to exercise a gift of the Holy Spirit, not as a badge of belonging or a mark that you've arrived, but that because God can use you and wants to do so. And the gifts that He lists are gifts that we all need at different times, and we may not always recognize them as a gift of the Holy Spirit. To one that is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. And I'm sure that if somebody, you approach a godly Christian and they give you wise and good advice, and if that wise and good advice has a ring of of rightness that just speaks into the situation that you're in. In the Old Testament, we read the the story of Solomon, who was counted as the wisest man alive. And two women brought a child that they were fighting over, each one claiming to be the mother, the other one, because one of the children had died. And Solomon simply says, cut the child in half and give half each to the mother's at which point the genuine mother of the child said, no, don't do such a thing, let her have it. And the one who was not the mother said, yes, do that. It's fair. And Solomon knew that the one who'd said, don't do that, was the genuine mother. Godly wisdom, purporting as wisdom, but wisdom that leads us to gracious activity that's consistent with the kingdom and the will of God is godly wisdom. It may not come in a whirlwind. It may not come with uh, tongues of fire or the sound of a rushing wind, but a word of wisdom from God in a situation is a movement of the Holy Spirit. To another is given the gift, a message of knowledge. And perhaps you've encountered, I certainly have, people who have just known something, who have prayed for me and spoken things about me, and I've never met them before, and yet in prayer they speak in a way that betrays a knowledge of me they could not possibly have. And they pray with a knowledge and authority into a situation, into my life, and I have never had a conversation with them. You know, we have a little prayer ministry team, and we need the gift of knowledge and of wisdom to be able to pray prayers that the Holy Spirit anoints and fills in, and that He reveals things. 
He reveals things. And sometimes that might just be uh, a word. That might be that somebody has a, a picture. Sometimes you know, a scripture comes to mind. And sometimes it's just a deep impression. Again, no violent wind or tongues of fire, but just the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I was speaking yesterday at a conference, a uh, day conference up in Dundee, just for an hour. And I had a whole bit uh, that I had planned to say. And I was, as I was kind of praying and thinking and preparing for it, I just had one word in my mind. And it was the word permission. And so I went and I did my presentation, but I shared with this group of elders that I was with this word that I think or felt or believed that God wanted them to receive, which was permission to take the next step. I don't think they remembered a single thing of any of the other stuff I said. I reckon if you were to go to any of them today and say, can you remember anything that Alistair said yesterday? They'd say, yes, permission. Because you see, if, if God gives something that speaks into a situation, then one word may be enough. And you might have that one word. You see, the church in Corinth was in danger of getting fixated on, ooh, I've got this and, and I've got that, and it's terribly exciting because that makes me really important. And Paul is saying this is an act of service to build up and encourage the body. And so when Paul says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, it's not a vanity exercise. It's simply an exercise that says, make sure that none of the tools that God wants you to have as a body is missing or absent. Any of us has found ourselves in a situation where you haven't had the right tool, right? Now, I have a mental picture, and I think it was in the youth group, of somebody hammering something with a saucepan the other week because you didn't have a hammer, but you improvised effectively with a saucepan. Kind of works. I suspect the job would have been better done with a hammer than a saucepan. So yeah, we can get by as a church, but if God wants to give us gifts that show signs of His grace, of His voice, of His power, then who are we to say no. And so we are in this place, I hope, where on the one hand we're saying, Lord, give me any and every gift that you need or want me to have in any situation that will be to your glory. Not as a vanity project, not as a badge of belonging or validation or affirmation, but simply because you distribute the tools that are needed to get the job done. And so, he goes on then to talk, and I'm running out of time, so we may have to return to these. But I've talked about healing, and some are used regularly and have an entire ministry in the, the, the healing ministry. Elizabeth Cleland is, is a chaplain in the healing ministry. George Fox, Ian Cowie, Ian Davidson. These are just some names of individuals who have been powerfully, consistently used in developing healing ministry in the church of Scotland and in the church in Scotland. We were 
privilege not that long ago to, to, have the, to host the annual David, uh, Dennis Duncan lecture, which was given by David Lunan, former moderator, speaking about the healing ministry and its place and its power in the history of the church in Scotland on behalf of the Guild of Health and St. Raphael. So at our peril, we dismiss these things as the wacky eccentricities of the lunatic fringe. Because if that's all they were, they would not be in Scripture. And Paul would not be urging us to open ourselves to the working and the moving of the Holy Spirit in whatever way he deems fit in order that the grace of God might be seen and known and made relevant in the lives of people. Once a month on a Friday, we host Light and Life in here. It's controversial. <laughs> Light and Life is a ministry that, that just seeks to open doors, the, the doors of this place, to people who would typically go to a spiritual fair and go doing tarot readings or go to psychic fairs or go and open themselves up to all manner of stuff. And so Light and Life is, is focused on reaching people like that. And it simply invites people to come. And they, they present it as spiritual readings, but they're all from Scripture. <laughs> and they will do hand massage, but pray for people as they're, as, they're, as they're doing that. And seek opportunities to share something of God, because there are people who are open and hungry for any and every experience indiscriminately. There are people particularly who in the early stages of their walk, as they're taking those first baby steps as Christians, may need the sign and the miracle and the miraculous intervention that will help them to know absolutely that there is a God. And so in this world where people are dull and deaf and unwilling to hear of the gospel of Jesus, we need any and every tool in the box that the Holy Spirit might give us for them to know and to understand that maybe there is a God who speaks and that the mute idols that they've been serving are just that, mute idols. We'll return to consideration of these gifts over the next few weeks. But let me just invite and encourage and challenge you if you are a believer if you are in Christ to ask that you might be used and gifted because last weekend we were away with the leadership team and one thing that was consistent in our reflections over that weekend and it was that we need to be a church that is shaped around the gifts that God has given his people so what gifts has God given you? What is his calling on your life? What gives you life? What makes you excited in your service for Jesus? For some people, it's caring for others. For others, it's going out on the streets and telling others. For other people, it's serving good food and extending hospitality. For other people, it's praying for folks. You know, different things light us up spiritually, and that's because God has equipped and made us for that very purpose. So what has God equipped you for? What is the niggle that gives you life or excites you in your service for Jesus? And it might be something in here, and it might be the people in your workplace, 
But how is God lighting you up by his spirit? And how might he? And if you're not sure, well, ask him. Ask him to fill you. Ask him to equip you. Ask him to use you and to show you. Because it's out of those prayers, as small as they may feel, that sometimes a calling like that which was on David Naismith, who ultimately, as I've since discovered, planted 70 missions around the world. That's how such great works are born, with simple prayers saying, Lord, take me, use me, fill me, equip me, show me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our loving Father, we praise and bless you for the way in which your Spirit is still powerfully at work. You call some, Lord, to service in your church, in, in ministry, in leadership. You call some to uh, urban mission. You call some to be missionaries and ministers in the workplace where they study or where they work. You equip us all at different ways and different times for different purposes. You refuse to be boxed in or pinned down because the wind blows where it wills. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to blow amongst and upon and through us as your people, to fan into flame and to show us how to fan into flame the gifts that are in us that perhaps we have not yet recognized. Give us the boldness or the courage to dare to step out into what we sense you calling us to, and give us the insight and discernment to see in others that which perhaps they cannot see in themselves. And all of it, Lord, not for us or for vanity or vainglory, but in order that the kingdom might advance in the world of the streets round about us, in the world of politics and government, in the world of global affairs, in the big, in the small, in the far, in the near, in the global, in the local. Lord, as we have heard and reflected this day on your work in other parts of the world through our brothers and sisters, we recognize that we are part of an interlinked, connected community of people. We thank you, Lord, for Tear Fund and the work that it does, not just in Nepal, but around the world. We thank you for 50 years of its existence, its ministry, its service. We thank you for all those that you've called to give and support, to pray, to go, to act, to engage. But Lord, as we think of that one ministry with its global reach of compassion, we recognize the work that goes on in the city, through Glasgow City Mission, through the Lodging House Mission in so many ways, and we pray your blessing on that particular ministry that you've called out and set up. But as soon as we begin to think of ministries, we recognize how vast and comprehensive, Lord, is the reach of your kingdom as you move people and open their eyes and hearts out of concern. So breathe anew upon your body, we pray. Renew us in giftedness and in calling that, Lord, we may come alive in the fullness of your gospel and your calling to be all that you intend us to become. So hear us as we pray. And as we take a moment in silence just to pray for the places that we will go this week, people that we will study alongside, 
people that we will work alongside, people that we will live amongst, and we lift them before you. Lord, glorify your name, we pray. Have your way through us and in this city and beyond. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.